Well, let's, let's pay close attention to God's word at this time. We come to a great text about uh, our salvation. And I want to look with you at Titus 3. Uh, we've been working through verses 1 through 8. Uh, verses 1 through 8. Uh, Paul uh, is dealing with the way believers should treat outsiders. Uh, in doing so, in writing this way, he writes very succinctly, but he answers two questions. First, how should we treat outsiders? That's verses 1 and 2. And then verses 3 through 8, how is it possible for us to treat them like that? So how should we treat them and how is it possible? Last week we noticed how to treat people outside the church. And Paul starts out with our heart attitude toward governing authorities. If you remember this. We are, verse 1, to submit to and obey authorities and thus be ready for every good work in our culture. So I challenged us to think about that fundamentally in our own culture. We must submit to and obey governing authorities and be ready for every good work. But further, Paul went, he goes beyond that and he talks about social graces even outside of government, but with outsiders uh, to the church. And he, he says in verse 2 that we must not slander and quarrel with outsiders. Instead, we should show kindness and perfect courtesy uh, toward all, to everyone. Now, this kind of love and submission and uh, attitude toward governing authorities and to people outside the church is only possible when we remember that we formally demonstrated the worst characteristics of lost people as well, ourselves. Right, so verse 3 is connected with that little word for. Paul is grounding and giving us a reason uh, for how this, or a, a way this might be possible. And he reminds us of our own former lost condition. We were foolish and disobedient. We were deceived and enslaved to passions and pleasures. We passed our days in malice and envy. We were hated by others and were hateful of one another. But then God saved us. And so as we think of treating people outside the church in in, in generous and kind ways we should remember what our own lost condition was before salvation. But it's that salvation that Paul describes thoroughly in verses 4 through 8. When we come to these verses, we come to one of the most dense and theological explanations of the act of salvation found anywhere in the Bible. I was comparing it to others, and I just can't find a text, maybe you could come to me and talk to me afterwards, and maybe you got another one you think rivals it, but just a dense theological explanation of the act of salvation in Scripture. Now, to better understand this dense statement that revolves around one loaded sentence in verses 4 through 7, I want to see how the text unfolds six aspects of our salvation. In a sense, this morning, we're going to look at the gears or the mechanics of our salvation. Uh, this past week, I watched a brief YouTube video of uh, the mechanics of a mechanical watch, how the inside works. And uh, while I don't profess to understand everything now that I've watched a four-minute video, uh, 
it talked about and illustrated six gears that work together for the hour and the minute hand to function at the right pace and in the right way. Um, these gears sometimes work in, in coordination with each other, others in other times in tension to one another. By looking at each part of our salvation, I think we'll get a greater understanding of it and have even more reason to worship Jesus in our final song at the end of our time together. So we're going to look at these six dynamics, but we'll start by reading the whole passage. Look at Titus 3, verse 3. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And so we look at the six aspects of salvation. Uh, the first, we, we begin with what I call the origins or origin of salvation in verse 4. Is what verse 4 is about. Look at it again. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appears. Here first Paul states where our salvation originates. Where it was initiated. Paul does not speak here of the whole work of God's initiation of our salvation in time past. There's a lot more he could say. Other texts fill in here, but he focuses on something in particular. He says, salvation begins for us when the appearance of the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, uh, came. This is the divine response to our terrible need of salvation. This salvation begins for us then the moment that God demonstrated benevolence and uh, this Loving kindness could be translated loving of mankind. This love for mankind on the human scene. Now when these two words, goodness and the word for loving kindness, are combined with the appearance of a Savior, it normally spoke of the benevolence and goodness of a visiting king or a visiting governor. And so in this passage, it refers to Jesus coming to earth, the Son of God, dying on the cross, and rising again. And this moment demonstrates God's unusual love of mankind. It's literally, it could be transliterated, philanthropy. His love for men 
and women and God's unusual generosity for us. That's uh, what I would call the origins of salvation. That origin leads us to the nature of it in verse 5, in the first three words in most English translations. So look at verse 5 with me, and I want you to see this. Okay, We read slowly through it. It says, He saved us. That is, God saved us. Here, this is the main verb, saved, of the whole sentence. One verb. God saved us. The subject is God. Object, us. Believers in Jesus Christ. God was the passive one, or the active one. We were the ones who received. And uh, this uh, picture is something that's found all throughout the Bible, in the New Testament especially. And the idea is we could do nothing. We needed help. But then he, God, saved us. Salvation depends completely then on, of, on God's rescue for us. Now, occasionally in our situation here in Virginia Beach, we'll hear of someone being saved in a drowning. And I want to use that illustration for a moment just to bring more clarity to, I think, what's actually going on here. The picture of unbelievers before their conversion is that they're dead in sins, Ephesians 2, before God rescues or saves them. To use the analogy of drowning, it's not that we were struggling and then that we, that we assisted the one who rescues us. Some rescues a lifesaver asks for the victim to help in some way by, you know, not punching them in the face or grabbing on, not, or paddling or holding on in the appropriate ways. Not so with us. We were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, completely helpless and unresponsive, unresponsive. Then God saved us through his own power and grace. That is the nature of salvation. He saved us. Can we move on? Third aspect, third gear here of the mechanics of salvation. I'll describe as the cause of salvation in the middle part of verse 5. The cause of salvation. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. The moving cause for salvation is not our works or our righteousness. Homer Kent says it well. He says, The product of our lives could bring only the verdict of guilty when tried by the demand of a holy God and his law. Instead, we are saved in accordance with or because of God's mercy. Or compassion on us. That is, our works could never merit God's salvation. It comes simply because of His mercy on us as sinful people. Dead in trespasses and sins. Paul declares this all throughout the New Testament. I think especially one of the, probably the clearest places you can read this is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as result of works so that no one may boast. 
Listen, we cannot respond to the sin problem that we have and the condemnation that we experience from a holy God by saying, oh God, I really blew it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to form my own righteousness here. I'm going to work my way toward acceptance from you. That would never work. And this text tells us that's not the cause of salvation. That's not how it works. God doesn't save anyone on the basis of their own works. He does so on the basis of his mercy and compassion alone. That leads to number four. We're going pretty quickly through these, but uh, some of these will take a little longer. Number four, the fourth aspect is the means of our salvation. The means of our salvation in the end part of verse five and verse six. And so I want to read that with you here. It says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so if you're paying close attention to what we've already seen, we see, okay, we're saved, not on the basis or in response to our own works, but because of God's mercy. And that should compel us to ask a question. How can a person who's dead in trespasses and sins, whose mind is opposed to God, be saved? I mean, how would it be justifiable for a holy God to simply demonstrate mercy or compassion on people? And the answer comes in this text through the agency of the Holy Spirit of God and through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so now we look a little bit more closely at how the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ affect the means of our salvation in verses 5 and 6. We start with the Holy Spirit's work. In our salvation, God reached down to us in our deepest needs by the Holy Spirit washing and renewing us. And I want to talk about both of those statements for a moment. First, what is the washing that's described in this passage in verse 5, and when does it occur? Some think the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Spirit comes as a subsequent act of God after he saves us. Sometimes far after he saves us. And in our particular setting in Virginia Beach, we need to know and understand the way some would explain this. This is a charismatic view of this. They would say this act of the Spirit of washing and uh, of uh, making new perhaps comes much later than salvation. However, the real key in this text is it's, it's connected with the idea of regeneration. In other words, whenever regeneration happens, that's when we're washed and cleansed by the Spirit of God. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. Others read this text and they, they see the washing here and they think that it's in reference to Christian baptism. Okay, and so they'll take this washing of regeneration. They think that maybe it's describing our baptism. 
We see it as like a literal washing with water or something, yet when Paul uses this word in other places, often it's not of a literal washing, but a spiritual cleansing. You could write down the reference, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, and you could turn there to see the same word used of Jesus washing the church by the water of the word. Speaking of an internal spiritual cleansing that he performs. So I think this is a metaphorical description of internal spiritual cleansing. Instead, the text here says that this washing comes in conjunction with regeneration. This washing is the internal cleansing then that we experience when we are regenerated. And if you think of that word generation in English, it can help you know what this is. It's talking about when someone is born. You put re with it when someone is reborn, rebirth. It's talking about the moment we're converted and born again by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. In John 3 and verse 8, Jesus says that spiritual birth comes. Says, so, he says, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Spiritual birth, being born again, only comes as a result of the Spirit of God. And so God affects a miraculous change in us that none of our human efforts or resources could affect. It comes through the Holy Spirit giving rebirth to us. Then secondly, the Spirit also renews us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but the Spirit then makes us new. Uh, you might consider 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 for a moment. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This work of being made new comes from the powerful spirit of the living God when we are converted. Do you believe that? God's powerful Holy Spirit worked to make us new and to give us a new birth at our conversion. That leads to another question, though. If you're paying close attention, you're thinking through these things. How can a holy, just God use his spirit to wash and renew people so sinful and undeserving? Like, how could this be possible? If you're reading the Old Testament, you're reading about God. He's so holy. He's so separate from sin. How could this holy God, on, on what basis could he... Give the Spirit to people to wash and renew them. That comes in the next phrase. The answer is God can do this for us through Jesus. Now, although Jesus' role in our salvation is multidimensional, we could spend all day looking at different texts to talk about what Jesus did to accomplish our salvation here. Paul draws our attention to God's work through Jesus Christ and his work in pouring out the Holy Spirit on us richly. One of the things I would stop and just point out to you very quickly here in this passage is in verses 5 and C, you see the work of the entire Godhead. The Holy Trinity. 
In what? In your salvation. In your conversion. God the Father brings salvation to us through the Holy Spirit and Christ Jesus our Lord. Your great salvation, men and women, comes as a work of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to deliver or rescue your depraved soul. In our text, we learn that God pours the Spirit out on us through Jesus abundantly or richly. God did not hold back the Spirit of God in the process of saving us. This abundantly or rich pouring out speaks of an outpouring, not a sprinkling, not a drizzling, not a little bit, but a major downpour. Okay, Can there be any doubt, men and women, that we, formerly depraved sinners, now possess the abundance, the fullness of the Spirit of God through the completed work of Jesus Christ, our Lord? So the way our salvation occurs is laid out here clearly. Our salvation comes through Jesus pouring the Spirit of God upon us richly and the Spirit giving life to the dead by washing us and making us new. That's the best I can do to explain it. Or as Paul, the apostle, explains, even better, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Matter of fact, why don't you turn over there for a second? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's been a while since I preached through 1 Corinthians. Verses 1 and 8, the Corinthian believers were suing one another down at the law courts in Corinth, and they were torpedoing the testimony of Christ. And Paul gives them different ways to deal with problems like this. They could set up Christian judges, or they could just allow themselves to be defrauded. But then in verses 9 through 11, he reminds them of the work that God did in saving them. And I want to just read it for you. Look at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Pay close attention here. This is why we're here. And such were some of you, but you were washed. Sound familiar? You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Men and women, this is the means of our conversion. God the Father working through Jesus Christ the Son and working by the Holy Spirit of God to make us new make us new. You can go back to Titus. Titus 3 and verse 7, we've been working through six aspects of our salvation. 
The means of our salvation leads us to the purpose. Verse 7. Titus 3, verse 7. So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This verse, verse 7, expresses God's purpose in our salvation. We are saved so that we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. God pours his spirit on us through Jesus Christ so that we might become heirs. Before our salvation, we were destined to something. We were destined to receive only damnation and wrath. But God saved us. He justified us by his grace that we might be the ones who would receive inheritance, an inheritance that's consistent with the hope of eternal life. And that purpose of salvation leads to our final aspect, number six, the evidence of our salvation. So look at verse eight. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now, this is our last verse. And before you zone out, there's a lot to unpack in verse 8. But I want to just kind of go through it with you briefly and show you, I think, what's going on. The first thing we need to unpack is right at the beginning of the verse. What is the faithful saying or trustworthy saying that Paul describes here? And to answer this, we need to know that this little, this little statement, uh, the saying is trustworthy, is used by, by, fault, by Paul frequently in the pastoral epistles to highlight a very important statement. So uh, look with me at 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. You keep your finger here. And uh, he does this four times in the pastorals. He writes 1 Timothy right around the same time as he writes Titus. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 uses the same exact phrase, and you'll see it there. The saying is trustworthy. Same phrase. And deserving of full acceptance. And if I were translating this, I'd put a colon right there, and I'd put quotation marks around the next part. What's the saying? Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. That is, from Paul, the trustworthy statement. The faithful statement that demands our attention. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, end quote. And then he tells us, of whom I'm the worst. Like a personal comment on that trustworthy statement that talks about the reason Jesus came into this world, to save sinners. That's a faithful saying. Second one is 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1. So you're in 1 Timothy, just look over chapter 3, verse 1. Thus saying is trustworthy. I don't know if you've ever seen this in reading through the pastorals, how this is repeated over and over again. Thus saying is trustworthy. And it should be, you know, again, if I were translating colon quotation mark, here's the statement. If anyone desires to be an overseer, he desires a good work, period, quotation marks. That's the faithful or trustworthy saying. If, if someone desires to be an overseer elder, they desire good work. Okay, we move along to the third one. 1 Timothy 4, 8, 9. 1 Timothy 4, 8, and 9. 
We start in verse 8. It says, for while, and uh, I would put quotation marks right here, before bodily. Okay, For while, bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way. End quotation mark as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Here the faithful saying, worthy of full acceptance, is bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way. Now go back to our text in Titus chapter 3 for a moment. Verse 8, he starts out, the saying is trustworthy. And so I want to take some of our knowledge of those other ones and, and help us understand what he's talking about here. In each of these other texts in First Timothy, the faithful saying was one sentence in the original, and so it is here. One powerful, summative sentence that's important. In two of the occurrences, the faithful saying comes right after the saying. It's like, the saying is trustworthy, colon, here it comes. But in the last one in 1 Timothy 4, it comes before. That's it. There's a faithful saying, bodily exercise is of some value, but godliness is profitable in every way. This is a faithful saying. It comes before. And I think that's what happens in our text. The faithful saying refers to the dense, expression of salvation that Paul gives us in verses 3 through 7. Okay, one sentence. Statement is one dense sentence. It is faithful. It is trustworthy. You can count on it. You should hold to it. And that's uh, what we've been describing here today. Now, next in verse 8, if we're going to walk away from this text and understand it, we need to understand that... When Paul says, insist on something to Titus, he describes it as these things. Again, we're in verse 8. Okay, Saying it's trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Well, what what is these things referring to? And I think it refers back to that full statement of salvation, but perhaps even verses 1 and 2 about the way we behave with governmental leaders and others in our culture because of God saving us. Titus must insist on this sort of behavior with outsiders that's informed by the way God saved us. And it leads to the ultimate goal in this text of insisting on these things. In verse 8, the goal is that believers would be careful to devote themselves to good works. That is, that they would take it very seriously to devote themselves in this way. It it must come to the forefront of their attention and commitments. And as a result, all of this will be excellent and profitable for all people. Here in verse 8, we see evidence of salvation, not the basis for it. Here he made that clear. I made it clear, it's not by works of our own righteousness, but here as evidence of the conversion and, and Titus insisting that believers understand these things properly and apply them to their lives and Christian behavior, 
they will be careful to devote themselves to good works that are profitable for others. And so, men and women, these are the mechanics of our salvation. This is salvation in a nutshell. The origin, the nature, the cause, the means, the purpose, and the evidence of our salvation. What we have considered briefly this morning is the most profound miracle the world has ever seen. God saving me. God saving you. God saving us through no human merit, through no works of our own. I don't know how your week has been. Perhaps uh, there have been moments this past week where you have struggled with the old sin nature. And you come in this week just profoundly impacted and cognizant of your own sinfulness. God saves us, not on any merit of our own, but through Jesus Christ, who pours the Holy Spirit of God upon us, who washes us, and who makes us new. It could also be that there's someone here today who's never believed in Jesus, who wouldn't be able to say, God saved me. It's simple and clear. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. If you would turn from your sin, repent of your sin, and believe in Jesus Christ, you could be included in this very short statement at the beginning of verse 5. God saved us. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, it has been a privilege to work through this biblical text. This is a text that you know I first memorized when I was a small boy in a children's ministry called Awana. This is a text that was the first text the children of our church memorized this year at our own children's ministry. I could have them up here today stating this text to us by memory, this faithful saying. But Lord, this moment, uh, this, this morning, we have looked at the mechanics of it, how it works. We have considered very briefly each of the wheels that works together in this thing called salvation. And I pray, Lord, that this attention would encourage my brothers and sisters in you. 
I pray, Lord, that they would, even in the midst perhaps of a challenging week, they would just be reminded, it's not because of me. It's not because of my performance. It's not because of my works done in righteousness, but it's according to your mercy. And may they see again and anew that that mercy that you showed to us did not come without a cost. It came with the cost of your son who died in the cross, on the cross, so that we could be forgiven. May my brothers and sisters be encouraged by how the entire Trinity, how you, Father, Son, and Spirit, work together to provide this salvation for us. And Lord, you know I was pleading before the sermon, I plead for the soul of a man or a woman here today who has never had this work of Jesus applied to them. Lord, may they see at this moment that it's that we are saved by grace through faith and that it is not a work of their own doing, but it is only through Christ. I pray for them in this moment that they would come before you, that they would pray, and they would ask you to save them through your powerful spirit. We believe it, Lord, and we pray that you would do that today. We thank you for this, and we pray that as we close in song, we might have even more reason to boast in who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.